We're going to take a break from Matthew. We're going to talk about dead to sin and alive in Christ. Dead to sin and alive in Christ. But before we do, let's pray together again. Father, I just thank you now again for this opportunity to be here, for this opportunity to preach your word. God, I pray that you would grant us understanding. I pray that you would grant us insight. I pray that you would help us to understand what it means to truly be a Christian, to truly be a follower of you, Lord. I pray that you would help us to revel in its glory, to revel in your goodness, to be amazed at your grace. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, we're going to talk about uh, dead to sin and alive in Christ. Dead to sin and alive in Christ. So um, I took a break this morning. We're supposed to have a, um, a baptism, uh, but, but Darren, uh, some of you know Darren Rogers. He uh, is Billy and Brenda's um, uh, son, and uh, he's, he's very sick, and he just had a bad night and had a bad morning, and so he's not able to be here. And so um, we, we pray that the Lord is going to open up a door for us to, to do this. But um, in view of that, what I wanted to do is to talk about what it, what, it is, uh, what it is to be a Christian, what it means to be a Christian. How would you define it? If somebody asked you, what is a Christian? What is a, what is a definition of a Christian? How do you think you would answer? Would you... Would you define it in terms of what a person believes? That's obviously an important part of being a Christian. Would you define it in terms of what a person does? That's, that's, that's an important part of being a Christian. But most of you, I assume, know and realize that when you get down to it, though, what a person, what a person believes or say they believe isn't a guarantee that they're a Christian. Even what a person does isn't guarantee that they're a Christian. So we're still then left with the question, what is the best way to really define what is a Christian? What is the essence of a Christian? Well, if you, so as we've said, it's a, it's a little bit more complex than maybe we realize. And so today what I want to talk about is dead to sin and alive in Christ. I want to look at this passage in Romans chapter 6, which talks about baptism, which is the initiatory rite, R-I-T-E, initiatory rite of Christianity, and what that means particularly about, about uh, and what that says about what it means to truly be a Christian. And to truly be a Christian, I believe, means to be dead to sin and alive in Christ. And we're going to see this from Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. If you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know? That all of us 
who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law, but under grace. The word of God. You may be seated. So we're going to explore this passage under three headings. Number one, Christians cannot abuse grace. Christians cannot abuse grace. Number two, Christians are dead to sin. Christians are dead to sin. And number three, Christians are alive in Christ. Christians are alive in Christ. First, we want to talk about how Christians cannot abuse grace. In verse one there, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, what is Paul talking about? We must remember that in this passage, we're jumping right into the middle of a, of a conversation already in progress. We're jumping into the middle of chapter 6, but he's already made this argument uh, leading up to this point, okay? Where where Paul is making a groundbreaking, earth-shattering case for the Christian religion that was very shocking to people in his day, especially to the Jews. Paul is arguing how all people are under sin. Everybody, without exception, is under sin, okay? And this was most shocking to the Jews who who believed that since they had the law, since they had the promises, since they were the chosen people of God, they thought that they were good and that if they just kept the law, that that just that kept them in right standing before God. But Paul comes into this with with a, a shocking revelation. Paul argues from scripture In chapters 1 through 5, that the idea that we can stand right before God based off of the Old Testament law or even what we do in general does not and cannot work because all of us, tiny little creatures, have sinned against an infinite, almighty God. We are all We all stand under God's just judgment and God's just wrath. Romans 1.18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And and it's not... And and so we have sinned against an infinite God. and, And you have to think about it. What can we 
offer to God to atone for our sins. Think about it. Everything that we have, everything that we are, already belongs to God. What can we give him to atone for our sin? What can we give him to make right the wrong that we have done? How can we make right the greatest wrong of rebelling against the greatest being there is? And so Paul really makes the case, and especially in Romans 1 through 3, that, that if everyone got what they deserved, no one would be saved. And so many people, you know, one of, the, one of the most powerful questions to some people's minds today is, you know, how could a loving God send people to hell? But interestingly, the Bible actually asks what in the, in the Bible's view is a more difficult question. For the, from a biblical perspective, the difficult question is not how God could send people to hell. The difficult question is how can anyone be saved? Because everybody deserves hell. How can anybody be saved when we've all sinned against God? And think about it. It's not just religious. It's not just even Christians or religious people that fall under this condemnation. Because everyone, who, even people who've never even heard of the Bible, everyone without exception has some sort of internal moral sense. Okay? Everybody. And guess what? Everyone, everyone, even the most irreligious person that there is who maybe you've even never heard of the Bible and what God commands us. Everyone has an internal moral sense. And guess what? Everyone has sinned against their own sense of right and wrong. You don't even have to agree with Christians on every point of ethics. But you can ask anybody, do you believe lying is wrong? Most people say yes. You ask them, have you ever told a lie? You condemn yourself. You have violated your own sense of right and wrong, not even just mine, not even just God's. You have violated your own conscience. And so we don't even have to go to the Bible to condemn ourselves. All we have to do is look in the mirror and know that we are under God's wrath and God's punishment. As Paul quotes from the Psalms, he says, none is righteous. No, not one. And see, this poses a big problem. That's the real problem of the Bible, not how God could send people to hell. How can God forgive sinners and not be an unjust God? How can he, how can he forgive people? Think about it. If he forgives people without punishing sin, what is he doing? He's saying sin's not a big deal. He's sweeping sin under the rug. What kind of good judge is going to sweep sin under the rug? How can we be saved? If we cannot be saved by what we do, then there's only one way we can be saved. There's a word for it. It's called grace. That's the only way anyone can be saved. If we can't be saved by merit, the only way we can be saved is by grace. And for Paul, it's a complex argument, but what Paul is saying is that since salvation has to be, must be by grace, then that means that we cannot save ourselves by any type of obedience, even to God's law. The only way we can be saved then, since salvation is by grace, the only way we can be saved then is through faith. Why? Because faith, as Paul says in Ephesians, he says, salvation is by grace through faith. And that, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one can boast. Faith 
is a vehicle. Faith is the vehicle for salvation by grace because faith is the only thing that's not a work. Faith is not a work. When you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, you aren't doing anything for God. All you're doing is you're changing the posture of your heart toward God. You are turning from a fundamental posture in your heart that says, my will be done. And you are turning to a fundamental posture of the heart that says, thy will be done. So the question is, which is the fundamental posture of your heart? My will be done or thy will be done? To me, that's one of the simplest tests of who is and isn't a Christian. It's not what we do. Faith is God's vehicle of salvation by grace. We do nothing to be saved. We can't do anything to be saved. Rather, God chooses freely to bestow forgiveness and righteousness from God as a gift received by faith. A gift freely bestowed upon those who believe in Jesus. This All this sets us up, sets us up for this question that he asks in verse 1 there in chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Think about it. People ever, from the very first day grace has been preached, people have been asking the question, the same question that the people ask today. If we are saved by grace, not based off of what we do, well, why can't I just live however I want? And then everything be hunky-dory because, hey, it's grace. Right? Guess what? People were asking that question 2,000 years ago to the first person who ever preached grace, the Apostle Paul. Dealing with the same question. And what's interesting is his answer. And we're going to talk about his answer later. But it's not what most people think. His answer is not what most people think. But the point here is this, this. It says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, this is how deadly sin is. Sin is so deadly that it wants wants to abuse grace. You see, there's two, two, again, it's a posture posture of the heart, right? There's some, one posture of the heart says, I wonder how much I can sin and not go to hell. Another posture of the heart says, I wonder how much I can honor God with my life. You see, it's two totally different ways of looking at the world. It's two totally different ways of posturing yourself towards God. One understands grace and one doesn't. If our attitude is, why not sin so that grace can abound, Paul argues it shows we've misunderstood grace. And we've misunderstood even what it means to be a Christian. But I do want to emphasize here the scandalous nature of grace. Grace is scandalous. Because if you preach it correctly, it's going, some people are going to ask this question. If people aren't asking this question, well, why can't I sin so that grace may abound? You may not be preaching grace enough. Grace is greater than anyone has ever imagined. No matter what you've done, no matter for how long you've done it, God can forgive you. That's scandalous. You know, there's some people who've done some really bad things. 
And you know what? There's somebody, somebody, somebody might have done something really bad to you. And in our sin, you know what? We might think we might think what happened to us was so bad that we might think, you know what? God could never forgive them. But what if he does? Grace is scandalous, y'all. I believe grace is so great that if Hitler had got on his knees and begged for mercy, God would have shown it to him. That's scandalous. That's scandalous to a Jew, y'all. What if that was your family that was in those concentration camps? That's how scandalous grace is. It is scandalous. But it's precisely because it is so amazing that we cannot abuse it. We can't abuse it. If being loved when you were unlovable doesn't change your heart, nothing can. If being loved the most when you were at your worst doesn't change your heart, nothing can. Which is why Christians cannot abuse grace. So number one, Christians cannot abuse grace. Number two, Christians are dead to sin. Let's look back at verses 1 through 7. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Christians are dead to sin. How does Paul answer the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What's interesting about Paul's answer is that he answers the question by turning to baptism. And he explains the nature of baptism because Paul understands that there is something in the nature of baptism that answers this question. About why it is that if we truly are saved by grace and not based off of what we do, that Christians then won't continue to sin. Now what is it about baptism then that answers this question? Well, let's follow Paul's logic. Paul's answer there in verse 2 most clearly, he says, by no means, by no means will we continue in sin that grace may abound. Why? He answers with a rhetorical question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now think about that question. How is that rhetorical question an answer to the question, verse 1. How is that an answer? Think about it. It's an answer because Paul is saying that a Christian, by definition, is somebody who something's happened to them. 
how can we who died to sin still live in it? The reason why a true Christian won't continue in sin so that grace may abound is because a true Christian has died to sin. A true Christian has died to sin. Paul explains this in terms of baptism because, and this is why this passage is the clearest passage, I think, about what baptism means, is that Paul assumes that if you are a Christian, you have been baptized. And if you have been baptized, what have you done in your baptism? Well, what happens in baptism? In baptism, you are submersed under the water. That's why we don't sprinkle, okay? Because that's not what baptism signifies. We submerse, we're Baptists, because it means something. It means when you go under the water, you are telling, you are publicly telling the world, I have died to sin. If you have been in the waters of believer's baptism, you have told the world, I am dead to sin. That's what baptism means. If it doesn't mean that, then you you just got wet. You weren't baptized. A Christian, by definition, by definition, we're getting to the definition now. A Christian, by definition, is a person whose old self has died with Christ on the cross. And new life is now at work in them. Paul says the exact same thing in Galatians 2, uh, verse 20. One of my favorite passages, uh, verses in the Bible. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, Paul says that his status as a Christian His status as right standing before law comes not from what he did or used to do from God. It came by grace through faith in Jesus Christ in which which a miracle took place in his heart. In which upon faith in Christ, he died to his sin and new spiritual life, new resurrection life is now at work in his life. Christ living through him. And that is what makes him a Christian. That is what a Christian is. A person who has died to sin and now new life is working in them because resurrection power is working in them because Jesus Christ is living in them. That's what a Christian is. According to, a Christian, according to Paul, by definition, a Christian is a person in whom a literal miracle has taken place. A spiritual death has taken place where your old self has died and a spiritual resurrection has taken place. Down and up. Spiritual resurrection has taken place so that new spiritual life is at work in you. That is what a Christian is. If we understand a Christian in this way, if we understand Paul's teaching in this way, then we can come to much greater clarity about what it means to be a Christian. That means a Christian is not merely then someone who made a decision one time. A Christian then is not merely someone who was taken to church semi-regularly as a kid. 
A Christian is not merely someone who's been dunked in a pool, who has walked an aisle, who has prayed a prayer, or who has their name on a church roll. None of those things are bad. In fact, all of those things are great. But they are not a guarantee that you are a Christian. And if you have done all of those things multiple times, it still is no guarantee that you are a Christian. Because a Christian, by definition, is not someone who's prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or can relate to you the right beliefs. A Christian, by definition, is someone who has died to their old self and has been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. A Christian, by definition, is someone who has had a miracle taking place in their heart. So why then, so when understood that way, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Why a Christian cannot continue in sin that grace may abound. Paul's answer for the reason that a Christian will not continue in sin so that grace may abound, his answer is not, his answer is not, well, that's what good Christians do. His answer is a Christian can't continue in sin so that grace may abound. Because, by definition, a Christian is somebody who has died to sin. And, as he said, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? The answer is, they can't. So Paul goes on and he just fleshes that out a little bit more. In verse 6 he says, we know, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So you have to understand his logic or his, his anthropology. That means doctrine of man. Anthropology means our understanding of man. There's a Christian anthropology. There's a Christian understanding of humanity. Paul's Christian understanding of humanity is that before Christ, we are dead in sin. We, are, we have sin nature, right? We're, we, we're, we live in the flesh, Paul says, okay? That's, who, that's what we are apart from Christ, okay? But Paul says when, when conversion takes place, or as in, in John chapter 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. When new birth takes place in your life, okay, when that happens, something fundamental changes at the very core of who you are. Your old self dies so that your new self can live. We, something, our, our old self has to die. And when we die to that sin, sin loses its power over us. We were a slave to sin. Think about it. If you're a slave and you die, guess what? You're free. We were enslaved to sin. And guess what? We, through Christ, we died to that sin. And now what? We're free. We're free from sin. We're not slaves to sin anymore. And that's exactly what Paul says. He views it as a slavery. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So a Christian then who has died to sin cannot willingly continue in sin because having died to it, we're free from it. It doesn't mean that a Christian will never sin. It doesn't mean that. But what it does mean, what it does mean is that our fundamental relationship towards sin has changed. 
If that, if, if that hasn't happened, then there, in what meaningful sense can we call ourselves a Christian? If our fundamental posture towards sin hasn't changed, right? Before we knew Christ, sin wasn't a big deal. It just wasn't a big deal. You remember that? It just wasn't a big deal. You didn't think about it. You didn't even think about it. You just did what felt right at the moment. You just, you didn't even think about it. But then when you become a Christian, something changes. And all of a sudden, it, it might not happen all immediately, all at once, because God is merciful. It would overwhelm us if he showed us all of our sin all at once. But slowly over time, something changes where we begin to realize, man, I've got to, some, I, don't, I need to stop talking like that. Wait, you know, I've been, I've been nursing this, this thought, this attitude, and that's not right. I need to kill that. You know, I said that, and I, I shouldn't have said that. I need to go make that right. All of a sudden, something changes because God has changed you. Your old self has died, so that new life is at work in you. That's how you know. That's what a Christian is. You don't want to sin. You feel genuine sorrow for sin when you do it, and you want to change. You are different because you're dead to sin, and sin is dead to you. You know, before, we thought we were free. You know, many people, lots of people kind of don't like Christianity because they view it as oppressive. All these rules, all these rules. But interestingly, the Bible actually takes the total opposite approach. It's, rather, it says this. It says, we think we're free when we give in to our desires. And the Bible says, no, maybe you're enslaved to your desires. Maybe you're not free when you're doing what you want. Maybe you're enslaved because you can't help but do what you want. You don't have the power to deny yourself because you're enslaved to your sin. You're not free. You're a slave to your desires. You can't not do what you want to do. And that's the most dangerous kind of slavery because you don't even realize you're a slave. You're a willing slave to your own desires. But Paul says that's not a Christian. Christians are dead to sin. And since we have died to sin, we're free. We're free to do what we couldn't do before. Love and serve God from the heart. And so number one, Christians cannot abuse grace. Number two, Christians are dead to sin. And number three, Christians are alive in Christ. Christians are alive in Christ. Verses 8 through 14, Paul says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. So baptism first tells us that a Christian is someone who is dead to sin 
And secondly, baptism tells us that a Christian is someone who is alive in Christ. Or as I read earlier, behold, he who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Being lifted up out of the water symbolizes our new life in Christ. Baptism, therefore, is what? It's identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's saying that just as Christ died and rose from the dead, in the same way I now, as a Christian, have died and rose from the dead. I have died to my sin, and I have been raised to new spiritual life in Christ. That's what a Christian is. And that's what baptism represents. Christ, when he died, he died to sin, Paul says. He died for sin. He died to pay the penalty of our sins so that we can be forgiven, right? Who? Jesus was the only person who ever lived who didn't deserve what he got. He died on that cross, and it should have been us. And Paul says, by faith in him, in a sense, it was us. Because when we believe in Jesus, the Bible says we're united with Christ. And so his death becomes our death. So when Christ died, he died for us. When, when, when we unite with Christ through faith, God counts Jesus' death as ours. Somebody died to our sin. It just wasn't us. It was Jesus. He stepped into our place. So that his death becomes our death. He died to sin. And then, but, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, right? The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. But if sin is forgiven, then death no longer holds sway. Jesus proved this by rising from the dead so that just as Jesus rose from the dead, we too experience spiritual resurrection now when we believe in Christ and we have the sure guarantee hope of future bodily resurrection on the last day when he comes back for us. And so the heart of Paul's explanation is this. He says, because these things are true, and especially because these things are true of you. In other words, he's reminding the Christian what it means to be Christian. He's saying, if you are Christian, if you've been baptized, you are dead to sin, you are alive in Christ. That is who you are, so now live like it. That is Paul's argument. That's his whole thrust. That's his, that's his whole point. That's what he says there. He says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's a command. Think about it. That's a command. The command of Paul to the Christian is a command of the mind. It's a command to think a certain way. It's a command to believe a certain truth. If you are a Christian, the truth is you are dead to sin and you are alive to Christ. If you are a Christian... That is who you are today, okay? Why is that so important? Because the world, the flesh, and the devil will tell you, you're not dead to that sin. You're not dead to that sin, okay? It's, it, it's not one day you may live in Christ. It is today you are alive in Christ. So what does that mean? It means as a Christian, every day we must make a conscious decision to believe what is true of me. And what is true of me is this. I am dead to sin, and sin is dead to me. So, I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to feel that way anymore. I don't have to believe that anymore. I don't have to hold on to that anymore. I might, I might 
Something in me might want to do that. But you know what? That's not who I am. How do I know that? Because God said it's not. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I don't have to say, well, you know, I, it, that, it's just who I am. A lot of people say that. Well, it's just who I am. No, it's not who you are. Not if you're a Christian. Why? Because you don't tell yourself who you are. God tells yourself who you are. If God says you're dead to sin, then guess what? It doesn't matter how you feel about it. You are dead to sin. So anything that tells you that that sin is still alive in you, guess what? It's lying. You ever been lied to by your flesh? Then why do you keep listening to it? Your flesh is lying to you. Your friends are lying to you. The devil is lying to you. If God says you're dead to sin, you're dead to sin. Start believing it. Start being who God has already made you to be. Not one day in the future, today. If you are a Christian, you already are free from sin. It's not one day in the sweet by and by I'll be free from sin. You're free from sin today because God has already killed you and raised you to new life. The battle plan of a Christian it then is not striving to be something you're not. It's choosing to be something you are. See, a lot of people misconstrue that. A lot of people think, oh, I'm just, you know, I just, I'm trying to be something that I'm not. No. Christianity is being who God has already made you to be. Who, had, who he has already recreated you to be. He who is in Christ is a new creation. Which is why Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. He says there in verse 12. So think about what sin tries to do. This is so important today. The way sin tries to enslave you is by making you obey, Paul says, its passions. Its passions. Why is this so important? Because it's the total opposite story, that, the total opposite narrative we get uh, from the world today. People today say, if I feel a certain way, if I desire a certain thing, that, that feeling is who I am. That desire is who I am. If I deny that feeling, if I deny that desire, I'm denying who I am. And, and Paul says actually the total opposite. It's saying, no, that desire is actually sin trying to enslave you. And the more you give into that, then what you're doing is you're actually making yourself a willing slave of your own desires. But if feelings don't define us, and thank God they don't, but if feelings don't define us, but if God defines us, if desires don't define us, but if God defines us, then guess what? I don't have to live in slavery. Because I can tell that desire, you're a liar. Get behind me, Satan. And because we're free, Paul says, we don't have to present our members. He said, that means our bodies. We don't have to present our bodies to sin as instruments for sin. In other words, his point is, is, his point is, is, is basically this. It's, it's viewed as you're, serving, you're either serving one or two masters and you have a body. And the question is, which master are you lending your body to in service? Are you, are you lending your body to sin so that sin can use you as an instrument for unrighteousness? Or are you giving your body to God so that God can use your body as an instrument for righteousness? So the question is, 
who you who you who you giving your body to, who you're surrendering yourself to, who you're presenting yourself to, to use for their purposes, sin or God. But Paul says there finally in verse fourteen. Um, he says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Basically what that means is that he's saying that if we were under the law, we would have no hope because the law is good. The law is right. The law tells us what God expects of us. And that's a good thing. But guess what? If all there was is law, we'd be in trouble. Because when you measure yourself up against the, to, against the law, guess what? You don't measure up. If all there was was law, we would be in big trouble. But thank God we're not under law. We're under grace. And because we're under grace, our right standing before God is ultimately not based on what we do, but what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And so since we're not under law, but since we're under grace, Paul actually says that that is actually what frees us from sin. You see, the law gives us no power to be free from sin. You know how I know that? Because if I tell my child what to do, and you know this too, sometimes they do it just because you told them not to. You know what I'm talking about? There's something in law that people don't like. But grace is different. There's something about grace that's amazing. There's something about saying, you know what? I love you despite your flaws. That when you really understand it, it makes you think, well, then I don't want to be flawed anymore if you're going to love me like that. That's what's amazing about grace. It does what the law can't do. It frees you from sin so that you're not its slave. It frees you to love and serve God from the heart. So as I close this morning, I just make this plea. Hopefully... It's clear enough now to us all what it is to be a Christian. And so as I close this morning, this is a great opportunity, I believe, to make as clear as possible an invitation. Maybe this morning you realized what a real Christian actually is. And maybe in your heart you can say, you know what? Maybe I made a decision one time. You know what? Maybe I walked an aisle one time. But you know what? The truth is, is deep down in my heart, I know that a spiritual death and resurrection never really took place. And I just want to say, if you feel that way, that may be God right now working in your heart, working new spiritual life in you. And so you can come today and receive Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray.